This is the business of sports. We're in a situation that we haven't dealt with in modern times. The pandemic here has really accelerated the investments that we've been advocating for for years. From a macro standpoint, I think our sport industry is really forced to look at the business a little bit differently. In-depth conversations with the leaders in the sports industry. Who wants to be the sacrificial lambs that shows up at the first big major sporting event? We're part of something much bigger than sport right now, and the health and safety of our stakeholders is what's most important. Every moment, I think we're all from a business perspective thinking about the impact that the virus is having across the country. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, everyone. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Mike Lynch. And over the next hour, we're going to catch you up on what's going on in the world of sports, especially when it comes to the business of sports. It's a big time. It always is a big time in the world of sports, but the NBA already back to business. We're going to speak with Mark Tatum. He is the deputy commissioner of the league, also the chief operating officer, all about how they're getting the game back onto the court, as it were, outside of a bubble. Lots of things to get into there. It was quite a year, we know, for the NBA, and 2021 is going to present a whole new set of challenges, Lynchy. But before we get to that, some huge headlines, it feels like, Mm. in the sports world, and especially when it comes to money and sports, which is what we love to talk about. Let's talk about colleges and the NCAA. This has been a topic that you and I have talked a lot about on this program, and this is headed to the Supreme Court, to Congress, everywhere you look, it seems, Lynchy, feels like people are saying, maybe college athletes should get paid. You know, there's all kinds of commissions that are popping up. There are all kinds of committees. Uh, We now have two senators that have uh, proposed on Thursday a college bill of rights, and for the second time in in ages, I think it's 1984 was the last time the Supreme Court got involved with the NCAA. And right now, there's going to be a lot of attention focused on this decision right now about compensation and uh, ability to use likeness. They call it uh, what are the NIL name, image, and likeness. I think is the uh, is the term they use. So this this is going to be a lot of attention paid to this decision. Well, and there are a lot of sort of complicated elements to this, it it feels like. And the fact, as you say, that it's sort of happening on all these different fronts, I think makes it a little more complicated. It feels like, as best I can tell, what the Supreme Court is essentially taking up is this notion of, is there a cap on what a, a university can ultimately offer a student athlete by way of compensation via scholarships? And should that definition be expanded? That is separate from this whole notion of name, image, and likeness. Can an athlete be paid for what he or she is essentially producing at a time when we know there is so much money chasing it? And, you know, you very rightly Lynchy remembered as we were preparing for this that this is not new across decades. And in fact, we talked about this with Amani Toomer, Giants standout, former University of Michigan player, about this back in September. Our coach, Gary Moeller, used to get $500,000 from Nike in 1996 money, in 1992 money, for us to wear Nikes. And I always thought that was just ridiculous. You know, we're out there we're doing it, we're out there wearing these shoes. And then, like, we couldn't even tape them. They wouldn't let us tape up the shoes because Nike wanted to see more Nike swooshes. That is something that stuck with both of us. I have quoted that back a number of times since that conversation, Lynchy. And 
This is not new. No, it's not. And it's something that bothered. This has been going on, as you said, for a long, long time. 1992, we're talking almost 30 years. Now, the uh, contrarian in me would say, well, if you didn't go to the University of Michigan, you wouldn't have had all the exposure you had, which allowed you to be drafted and allowed you to have a, a very profitable and uh, professional career with the uh, with New York football giants. So it's really that line between the amateurism and being paid is just, it's been blurred for a long, long time. And it might come more into focus and there might be some clarity to it uh, when the NCAA, uh, the, when this, the Supreme Court rules on this decision. Yeah. I mean, one of the nuanced arguments, of course, around this is this notion that there are lots and lots and lots of athletes who play at the college level, play at a very high level, and don't turn pro, right? And so this Mm -hmm. is the time when they can benefit financially from their athletic gifts. And there is a debate, as you say, as to whether an education is essentially – good enough, uh, as it were. I do think, and we talked about this again, it's sort of a reflection of how much we've been talking about this. You know, when we caught up with Amy Perko at the Knight Commission, she was talking about just how much this has been exacerbated in, for lack of a better term, big time college football in many ways, where you have the coaches among the highest paid state employees in their respective states. And I just think it's all coming to a head. It is. Uh, Amy is going to be part of this uh, National College uh, Football Association that basically is going to secede from Division Two and Division Three and sort of be its own entity and uh, control some of the, <clears throat> as she says, the out-of-control money that's going around in big-time college football right now. So feels like some radical changes may be afoot here as we head into 21 when it comes to college athletics. And when we move over to baseball, it was a big week there as well. We're going to have spring training allegedly starting on time. But also I think important to note that looking backwards in a positive way, Major League Baseball made a big decision this week in the interest of fairness. It did with the uh, with the Negro Leagues and now recognizing them as Major League Baseball. Uh, they had, first they had a commission in 1969 that said none of the records that were set between 1920 and 1948, which was the year of the years of the Negro Leagues, won't count. But now they will. And guys like Josh Gibson, Satchel Paige, Willie Mays even played in the Negro Leagues and had 14 hits before he became uh, a member of the New York Baseball Giants. So that's a huge, huge step. And you know, it's just once again, it's part of the year 20. 2020, uh, some of the good things that have come out of this year, uh, all, those, all we've, the social awareness that we have had, Black Lives Matter, and now the Negro Leagues being recognized as Major League Baseball. Yeah, it gives you a little bit of optimism when you see big institutions really doing the right thing. And and baseball, we've been critical of Major League Baseball on this show for sure. And, and certainly they've got uh, some hills to climb when it comes to a new contract with the players that's still coming up in 21 but you know a little bit of optimism uh maybe about baseball how do you feel about baseball right now 
Well, I'm feeling a little bit better. Uh, the Cleveland Indians are uh, going to change their name. They will play in 2021 as the Cleveland Indians, but it appears that the, the, the people that have been affected the most have been heard. They've sat down at the table with the ownership of the Cleveland Indians, and I think that this is a smart decision. It's not going to be impulsive uh, on a name change, and by sometime in midsummer, they will have a, a name that's acceptable to uh, Native Americans and the city of Cleveland and the baseball organization itself. This, of course, is happening at the same time that the very same conversation is happening in the nation's capital around the Washington football team. They made that decision. I actually got a chance to catch up with Jason Wright, the president, who has been a guest on this show before. We'll roll some of that out next week. But, you know, he was saying to me uh, as part of that interview that while obviously these are similar situations, each city, it's idiosyncratic. You know, each city, each team, each community has to, you know, come together with its individual stakeholders and make the right decision. And as he said, these are weighty decisions. These are 100-year decisions in many ways, and uh, they are complicated, but it does feel like, as you say, Lynchy, we seem to be heading in the right direction, and maybe when we look back at 2020, we'll be able to see that some of the right decisions started to be made. All right, let's get to this week's guest. We're talking hoop. That's right. Two and a half months after the Los Angeles Lakers captured the 2020 title in that now-famous bubble— the NBA regular season, it's going to pick up again on the 22nd, Tuesday, December 22nd. Tune in to TNT. It's a doubleheader. The Brooklyn Nets hosting the Warriors. And of course, those defending champion Lakers, they will play the Clippers. That's all starts at 7 p.m. And we are delighted to get into all of that and so much more with Mark Tatum. He is the NBA's Deputy Commissioner, also the Chief Operating Officer. Mark, really good to talk to you. We were going deep on your background and Lynchy's background before we came on air. Uh, Really excited to talk to you because we know it's a very busy time. You're back to business already. What is like number one on your agenda right now? Absolutely, Jason and and Mike. It's great to be with you guys. Uh, Number one on our agenda is getting our season up and running in a safe and healthy way. You know, that's been the priority here for the last several weeks since we finished up our last season in the bubble. The, The last season was the longest season in NBA history. And this is one of the shortest turnarounds in, in NBA history. And so being able to get back to basketball and get our season up and running with keeping everybody healthy and safe is our number one priority right now. Well, you went uh, three months without one positive test down in the bubble. Now you're without the bubble. Tell me some of the challenges uh, that you're facing right now without uh, the bubble this season and the season uh, less than a week away. Yeah, thanks, Mike. You know, when we put together the bubble, we work with our medical experts and public health officials to really put together a set of protocols and environment where we could keep everybody safe. But I got to tell you, it required tremendous sacrifice from our players, from the teams, from our staff who were asked to go down and in cases, leave their families, leave their friends for an extended period of time. And we just decided that that was just untenable to return back to a bubble environment for an entire season. And so we have been working, again, very closely with those same medical experts, those same public health officials, the Players Association, and our teams to figure out how we can actually safely and responsibly return to play in our arenas. 
And we've learned a lot about COVID-19 since we suspended our season last March and operating our campus, including how to mitigate the risks associated with the virus and its transmission. And so we put together this set of protocols that we think will work and allow us to safely and responsibly return to play. And the thing that I think has been so critical, even in the bubble, you know, people talk about the testing. The testing is actually not what keeps people safe. The testing will just discover the the virus. Um, That's not why we got zero tests in the bubble. It's because the players and team staff, they actually followed the protocol. They wore their masks. They socially distanced. They, you know, they, they, they took the protocols very seriously. Um, and we expect and, and hope that our players and teams and everyone involved now playing in their local markets will continue to take those uh, protocols seriously and, and, and which will allow us to, again, operate in a safe and healthy way. And so, Mark, to that exact point, I mean, you've seen other leagues, including the NFL, levying fines for, you know, not wearing masks, for bad behavior. You know, we've seen that through the NFL a little bit uh, in in baseball as well. What is the the right balance in terms of sort of carrot and stick here? What are you prepared to do to, to make sure that everybody's following the rules? Well, again, I think we have a great partnership with the Players Association. We've been in constant dialogue with Michelle Roberts and her team, Chris Paul and the executive committee, and they take it just as if they take it just as seriously as, as we do, Jason. And you know, this is they, they they feel a responsibility to each other to ensure that um, everybody's following the the protocols. And so, you know, we um, uh, have confidence that with these protocols in place, that we're going to be able to you know, do what we need to do and keep everyone safe and healthy. And and we'll deal with situations on a case-by-case basis. Um, Those are things that, you know, we had to work through with the Players Association um, when we were even down in Orlando. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, And so I think we'll continue to deal with those cases as they come up. Mark, what kind of lessons did you learn from Major League Baseball and the NFL, uh, two leagues that did not uh, and do not have a bubble? Yeah, we, we studied them a lot and we talked to them a lot and we engaged with, engaged with them a lot to really understand, um, how they, uh, operate. You know, there are obviously some differences between, um, NFL and, and baseball. Uh, first and foremost, those sports are outdoor sports. They, uh, in the case of football, for example, they, they aren't playing as frequently as we are. Um, you know, we're an indoor sport. We're going to be playing uh, on a more regular basis, on a weekly basis. And so, you know, we, we, we've taken the learnings from them in ter- the best we can and consulted with their medical experts as well to, you know, really see things that we might be able to apply to our model, even though the sports are very, very different. Um, but we feel like we have a great plan in place, again, dealing with our experts, um, and, and putting together protocols that we think will, will be able to keep everybody safe and healthy. Mark, one thing I want to make sure I understand, in, in terms of like arena to arena, city to city, how do you sort of determine what the rules are when it comes to fans and personnel and, and who ultimately is, is making those decisions? I mean, you guys are well known for having great relationships with your owners and, and with your players, but it's going to vary from region to region and place to place. How does that work? It will. So our teams have been in close touch with 
their local health authorities, and in many cases we have been there as well, um, giving confidence to uh, those local um, health officials about our protocols. And, and in some cases, uh, fans will be allowed in uh, arenas, you know, in the, in the very beginning. We've had uh, five teams make announcements about being able to open up with fans, uh, Houston, Memphis, New Orleans, Orlando, and Utah. Um, and, you know, and, and they've gotten their local government officials comfortable with the protocols that we've put in place uh, to allow fans. Our, our hope is that, you know, at some point we can play in our arenas in front of fans for as much of the upcoming season as possible, provided that we can do it safely. Uh, and so, you know, it really is a combination of conversations with our teams and with the local uh, public health officials. So, Mark, I, you know, one of the interesting elements of this, it feels like, at least from a, a fan's perspective, is you are, as you said, right back at it. You guys were able to come to an agreement with the players, with the teams, with the union to get back on the court before the end of the year. Help us understand the business implications of that and why it was important to get back on the court before 2021. Yeah, it's a great question, Jason. So like I said earlier, we have such a great relationship with the Players Association. We have been engaging with them on this particular issue and other issues of how to deal with the impacts of the pandemic on our business uh, starting on March 11th when we suspended the season. And from there, we have been having conversations with them several times a week on the impact that that this pandemic has had on our business. And that's how we collectively came to uh, creating the bubble um, this past season, which really helped us salvage um, our business significantly uh, last season. And we knew that this upcoming season, there would be a significant impact given that 40% or so of our revenues comes from fans in arenas. And we knew that early on that would be impacted. And so, you know, we, we really had to work together with them to understand the business implications. And we were able, obviously our partnership with them is a, a partnership where we share in basketball related income, um, which would be affected this year. And so we, you know, we had to work out uh, an agreement with them to to uh, deal with that and make sure that uh, the parties were you know receiving uh, each the, the the relevant share of the basketball related income um, despite the effects that this would have on our business uh, over this year and so that was something that we worked out again with the players association and as part of that um, we felt like getting back on the court. Uh, starting December 22nd and playing a 72-game schedule, which would allow us to finish our season in July and then get us back on a regular cadence um, you know, of October through June, which is when our season is, is generally uh, played. And we thought that was important from a business standpoint, from a business perspective, our fans, are accustomed to seeing us on that on that calendar. Our players are accustomed to playing on that calendar, um, and so we were able to work out that agreement with the players association to start when we when we started, finish when we finish, when we're planning to finish, 
um, and then get back on our regular cadence of October through June. Mark, uh, in that agreement, uh, there's two words that would never pass through the lips of a Major League Baseball player or through the keyboard of any NFL player, salary reduction. How do you get the players <laughs> to come out? <laughs> Honest to goodness, I mean, you know, we've all followed the labor relations with those other two sports, but that's a conversation for another time. What, how, how are you able to have the best rela- business relationship between ownership, league, and players compared to anybody else? And don't be modest about this now because it is. <laughs> well, Mike, again, I, I think it, it takes two. It really takes two. And, 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 again, I think over the years we've established this trust with the Players Association that we truly are partners. Uh, and the way that our agreement is structured is set up that way, where we are, in essence, 50-50 partners on the revenue. And so there, there is an understanding here that these are unusual circumstances and that everyone in the world is being affected by this. And so the players um, understand that. Uh, you know, one of the things that we agreed to do here is – despite the drop, the projected drop in revenues this year, that we're going to keep the salary cap the same um, uh, as last year. And that, and that going forward in future years, we're going to set a minimum um, salary cap number so that players will continue to be uh, you know, paid at that level so there won't be a, a precipitous drop, um, if you will, because of the drop in revenue. And so we're going to, over time, we've worked out an agreement with the players where we'll be able to recover that money so that neither side is paying more than their fair share. So that's a, that's a business conversation that we've had with them. They, it, it's an understanding of each other's businesses and how we're impacted by that. Um, and as partners, you know, we're just able to work through those issues and have those conversations. And whether it's this issue or, you know, issues that we've had to deal with them in the past, we've always just taken that approach of being good listeners, of being open about the business and being on the same page with respect to how do we continue to grow the business together? Because if we grow the business and we grow the pie, um, then everybody wins. So, Mark, one stakeholder, as it were, that we haven't talked as much about is the corporate side of all of this, the sponsors of the league. Uh, They obviously are a partner in all of this as well. You worked in the corporate world. You've worked in sports leagues other than the, the NBA Given the upside down nature of this world we're living in, you know, not as many fans in the stands to see uh, advertising, different sort of consumption. How does the sort of corporate sponsorship of the NBA change? How has it changed? And where are we now? Yeah, the corporate partners have been incredible, particularly during this time. We have worked so closely with them. I just think back to the bubble and the fact that we created the the virtual fan experience, that was a partnership with Microsoft and, and part of our new partnership with them where we went to them and said, how do we come up with an opportunity to give fans the chance to experience the NBA in Orlando, even though we knew we couldn't, they couldn't be there physically, could we do that virtually? And it was that partnership that, where we came up with the Microsoft Together Teams mode um, to be able to implement in that way in the arena. You know, AT&T is a partner, and the, with the launch of 5G now, able to do hologram interviews uh, from the bubble <laughs> was, and, and during the, the NBA draft was incredible. 
um, you know, partners like Gatorade who are really focusing on content. They they created their own hydration freeze that you may have seen in the bubble and now in arenas where instead of people going up to the Gatorade cooler, they each have their own individual hydration tree next to their individual seat. So again, adapting to the times and creating solutions for our game for the time. I I also think from a technology standpoint and viewership standpoint, our partnership with Facebook and bringing the virtual reality experience to fans, you know, one of the things that we were able to do in the bubble and that we'll be able to do um, this season with fewer fans in the building is create different camera angles, different um, experiences. The rail cam gave you that courtside seat experience, and that was a partnership of ours with Facebook and Oculus. And so those are the, the, same, the, the same way that we have this partnership with the Players Association. We also have these great partnerships with these corporate partners and marketing partners, and we generally go to them and say, hey, here's an issue that we're trying to solve. Can you help us solve it? And, and those are how I think the best ideas, those are where the best ideas come from. Mark, did you get any pushback from the sponsors uh, when they looked at the ratings of the NBA Finals? Obviously, they were off for a myriad of, of reasons, uh, playing in the end of the summer against Major League Baseball and a lot of other factors. Did you get any pushback from them when they looked at the numbers? Not at all, not at all. You know, our partners um, were not concerned about the, the ratings, as you said. Mike, there was such a multitude of macro issues. You know, we were playing in the middle of the summer, a displaced time of the year. Um, these were suboptimal broadcast windows. We were playing in the daytime. Um, you know, we were up against a very crowded sports calendar and then the uh, election and the consumption of news leading up to that. What, what our partners still realize is that our games are delivered and continue to deliver the largest audiences in key demographics. We were the most viewed program of the night among key ad demos of the eight adults, 18 of 49 on 30 of the 41 nights of the playoffs and finals and 34 of the 41 nights among males, 18 of 49. So our corporate partners understand that we still deliver massive audiences um, amongst those key demographics. And, not to mention the enormous popularity on social media. We have nearly 2 billion followers um, and set records in terms of social media engagement, and that's where our partners have activated with us as well as in that digital and social media space. Well, clearly a lot of the attention uh, this summer ahead of the restart and during the restart in the bubble was around social justice. Let's listen a bit to what your boss, Adam Silver, uh, had to say about player empowerment. Players know and the NBA community knows there's, there's a long history in this league of fighting for social justice, for racial equality, and um, it seemed appropriate. So it seemed appropriate, and it clearly, I, I think, is appropriate for us to talk about the fact, and I'll sort of echo something that Lynchy said earlier, uh, it is indisputable that player empowerment is more welcomed, it feels like, uh, in the NBA than it is in other leagues. There's a comfort level uh, there that exists. Tell us about that aspect, especially in the bubble, because there were some 
tense moments. Uh, you know, the Milwaukee Bucks and the rest of the teams essentially walking off the court, not essentially, walking off the court. Uh, negotiations about coming back. Help us understand what that was like, Mark. Yeah, well, you know, they they, they didn't walk off the court. They they never came out. They never uh, came out the right. court for the yeah. game. Exactly. Fair point. And you know, and, and and I have to tell you again the the relationship that we have had with the players' association and the players during that time um, was so helpful. We when we went into the bubble, we collectively with the players' association and our board of governors agreed that one of the primary functions of 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 the bubble was one keeping everybody healthy and safe but also to ensure that the conversation would keep going on the fight for social justice and racial equality and um, and those conversations continued every single day throughout the bubble and following Milwaukee's decision not to play we had very candid and productive conversations with our players with our coaches and with our team governors um, how, about how to further co- our collective efforts and actions in support of social justice and racial equality. And so coming out of that, those series of conversations um, a day after the Milwaukee Bucks decided not to come out is we established this social justice coalition. And we agreed to we agreed to establish a social justice coalition that would be focused on increasing access to voting, promoting civic engagement, and advocating for meaningful police and criminal justice reform. And so we wanted to um, convert that feeling that our players and, and our coaches and the league had into action. Um, and as you all recall, uh, twenty three of our arenas. Um, turned their arenas into polling locations for the general election to allow for a safe in-person voting option. We created advertising spots during playoff games dedicated to promoting greater civic engagement and raising awareness around voter access and opportunity. Uh, We worked with several not-for-profit, nonpartisan voting organizations to sign up first-time poll workers um, and, and, and really encourage people to engage in their civic duty to vote. And, um, and, and you know, now uh, that coupled with the establishment of the NBA Foundation, a $300 million commitment over 10 years to create greater economic opportunity and career advancement in the black community, you know, those are the things that our players, the league collectively have come together on to say, here's how we're going to continue the fight for social justice in, in, in this country. Mark, will the, uh, the the messages for social issues like names on the back of jerseys, uh, uh, signage on the on the floor on the court, will that continue in the uh, twenty uh, twenty one season? You know, I, I think this summer, Mike, was an extraordinary moment in time, and, um, and and my expectation is that those messages will largely be left to be delivered off the court this season um, through the NBA Foundation, through the Social Justice Coalition. Um, you know, those, I think, are the vehicles by which the players, the league now are starting to um, organize and, and uh, our actions around to affect change in that area. And, you know, Mark, I have to ask you, if, if you'll indulge me a bit, sort of what this what this year has been like for you, sort of witnessing all of this upheaval from a very senior level 
uh, you know, looking at a league that has embraced player empowerment. I know a lot of people have looked to you for leadership. I, I would love to know, you know, how you sort of end 2020 looking back and, and all the upheaval, to say the least, that, that we've seen. Yeah, it's been an extraordinary year, Jason. And like I said, it, it was the longest year, longest season in NBA history. Um, you know, we obviously had to deal with more than our fair share of challenges and even going back to um, the, the passing of David Stern, the passing of Kobe Bryant, which happened in this calendar year, the dealing with the pandemic, dealing with the social um, justice and unrest issues in this country. So it, it's been a challenging year. What I'd say um, I've been proud of is the way that our league collectively, the players, the coaches, um, our governors, everyone really came together this year and rallied around the things that mattered most to really make a difference. And, you know, whether it was early on and having our players do PSAs to educate people on the significance of this virus and how to prevent the spread of it, right? We did early PSAs with our players on the importance of wearing masks and washing hands and social socially distancing. I think that made a difference in potentially saving lives and, you know, and to, to, to creating the bubble and being able to demonstrate how to operate successfully in a pandemic. I think these are all lessons. And, and then, and then of, of course, you know, encouraging people to fight for racial equality and social justice um, and, and our players in the league playing a leadership role in that. I, I think I look back and I'm, I'm, I'm extraordinarily hopeful about the future and proud of our league for the role that we played uh, over this past year. Well, there's no question you guys have been leaders uh, in, 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 in so many different areas that we've discussed uh, during this conversation right here. Um, my, my final uh, question to you is, have you built in dates in the schedule should some players, a number of players test positive and they can't field a team that they could make up the game um, like baseball did uh, and like football has had to do on Tuesday and Wednesday night games? Yeah, no, th- thank you for that question, Mike. We, you know, Your earlier question when you asked what what did you learn from yeah. baseball and football, that, that is one of the things. We, with the uncertainty around the virus, uh, we recognize that we may be forced to postpone or cancel games. And so we actually built in flexibility into our schedule, and we're prepared to adjust that as we go. So one of the things that we have never done before is we announced the first half of the 2020-21 regular season right. schedule, which would be starting December 22nd and going through March 4th. Um, the second half of the schedule won't be released until later in the first half, which will allow us to make up any necessary games that may be postponed um, and, and give us some flexibility there. So uh, that is one of the things that we certainly learned um, and we built in that flexibility. We're, we're also, by the way, you know, um, cutting back on the amount of travel by some 25% or so by having teams, for example, go into a city and instead of going into New York, for example, and just playing the Knicks or just playing the Nets, um, wherever possible, we're going to keep that team in that city where they can actually play the Knicks and the Nets um, in a, in, 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 in a, either a back-to-back or in, you know, in, in, in that week. Um, same thing when teams go to L.A. So we're really trying to minimize the city-to-city 
travel as well. Um, and, and that's going to, I think, be one of the things that, uh, you know, helps us minimize the risk associated with this virus. Mark Tatum, you've been very, very generous with your time. We really appreciate it. We know it's incredibly busy. NBA Deputy Commissioner Mark Tatum joining us ahead of that Tuesday, December 22nd tip-off, a doubleheader on TNT. The Nets and the Warriors and the Lakers and the Clippers. It all starts at 7 p.m. Best of luck to you, Mark. We know it's a long road ahead, uh, but definitely rooting for the NBA here. Thank you, guys. It was a pleasure being with you, and uh, thank you so much. So, Lynchy, uh, obviously very interesting conversation there with Mark Tatum, very much on the front lines, to say the least. You know, it's interesting. When we talk to somebody from the NBA, sometimes I feel like I myself at least am sort of overdoing it when I say, you know, you guys do a good job with this, you do a good job with that. But the fact of the matter is they do stand out from the other professional leagues in terms of player relations, owner relations, sort of low drama, like all of it, even at it at a time when clearly their players are out there on social justice, they're out there on social media, I still haven't figured out what the secret sauce is, but <laughs> there, there you have it. I don't, I don't know what you think. Well, I think one word seems to come to the surface whenever we're talking about why that their relationship is the best of all the major sports organizations, and the word is trust. Yeah. And and, and Mark actually used that about when he talked about the uh, the, the salary reduction uh, and the BRI, which is a term I never knew before, basketball related income, and. Trust is big, and they know that the NBA owners and the league has their back. Um, the, the Milwaukee Bucks knew that they would get support from uh, the league and the ownership when they decided not to come out for their playoff game. Yeah. And I don't know if you can say the same for the other major leagues. I mean, if, you know, the Pittsburgh Steelers didn't want to come out for a game. Would they forfeit the game? I don't know if they trust the, uh, the shield like, right. the, like the NBA players trust the, uh, the NBA. Yeah, I mean, clearly, Adam Silver, Mark Tatum, the rest of the leadership there, they, you know, obviously have earned the trust. I mean, I I also do think about, and I think you and I have talked about this before, it's a different, I don't know if it's a different caliber, but a different ownership approach, it feels like, has taken over in the NBA. You've got some younger, maybe more business-minded, maybe more forward-thinking uh, owners than you do in some of the other leagues as well. Clearly, that's that's a part of it, and they've managed to sort of figure out these relationships. Chris Paul obviously gets a lot of credit, Michelle Roberts as well, on the player and the union side. So, interesting to watch. A bubble is one thing. Going back home and traveling and all that, we know it is going to be a lot trickier. I was glad that we did talk about, uh, per your last question there, what they're doing to provide a little bit of flex. And so we don't know what the second half of the season is going to be like. Listen, we don't know what next week is going to be like no. in this world we're living no. in. So uh, interesting uh, always to, to spend some time with him. What will be interesting about the NBA is they usually dress 12 guys for a game. As opposed to the NFL, we have 53 and the uh, Major League Baseball where you've got 25 and you had a taxi squad of 25. So they could afford to have a few people test positive and schedule their games. The NBA doesn't really have that wiggle room roster-wise. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll see what the season uh, holds because it's starting uh, on the 22nd. I mean, I do think back to last season, which feels like uh, a long time ago, the beginning of last season, which actually started uh, last October. I remember being in Los Angeles for that game between the Lakers and the Clippers. And if you recall, this is funny to remember, given how it all turned out. The Clippers really 
beat the heck out of the Lakers in that opening game. And <laughs> obviously the Lakers ended up having the last laugh over their hometown rival and everyone else uh, for that matter. All right. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're here each and every week at the same time, plus online, wherever you get your podcast. Catch those Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. In the meantime, if you're headed over to Twitter, find me, Jason Kelly, at Jason Kelly News. And I'm Mike Lynch. You can follow me at LynchyWCVB. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world.